There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. From a solo debut by Yeah Yeah Yeah's singer and Oscar nominee Karen O, to an 80th birthday release from the great Leonard Cohen, the fall season is packed with big records. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cox. We'll review a bunch of new fall albums, and Jim will add a song he can't live without to the Desert Island Jukebox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and you know, Greg, it seems to me that in the age of the internet, the release date is a nebulous concept. Mm. You know, albums just, as soon as they're finished, they start floating out there on the net, and yet the last two weeks of September, the first three weeks of October, remain a key time for bands and labels pushing their new albums out there. Do you have any idea why? Yeah, it's odd, Jim, because you're right. Release dates supposedly don't matter, but apparently to the recording industry, they still do. They still put a lot of stock in fourth quarter sales because this is gift-giving season. Oh, They still think people <laughs> are going to gift one another with new music. And in fact, uh, fourth quarter sales are traditionally the time when record sales are at their peak, so they save all their big ones for this part of the year. Well, we'll talk about what albums are worthy of gift-giving a little bit later, but first some music news. Greg, that is a leaked track from an album called The Endless River, which is the first new music from Pink Floyd in two decades. Pink Floyd has not been heard from since The Division Bell in 1994, and this new album has been announced. It's coming on November 10th. It's got some interesting producers, Roxy Music guitarist Phil Manzanera, the ambient house music pioneer youth Andy Jackson, who's been part of the Floyd camp for a long time. Of course, David Gilmour, the guitarist and vocalist, has not reunited and never will with Roger Waters, the bassist, main songwriter and vocalist. Pink Floyd is only uh, Gilmore and drummer Nick Mason these days. But this is a tribute to Richard Wright, who was a founding member of the band who died in 2008. He was the keyboard player, a real linchpin in the Floyd sound. There were apparently some 20 hours of tape left over from the Division Bell sessions, and this instrumental album is going to be built on those tracks. I have to confess, the 13-year-old Pink Floyd fanatic in me is actually excited about this, though I know better, because there hasn't been a good Pink Floyd album since The Wall, right? (laughs) What about you? Are you psyched? Well, Jim, I think uh, I've got a theory about why, first of all, this is an instrumental album, because uh, Roger Waters used to delight in telling stories about David Gilmour's lack of lyric writing ability when the two of them were feuding in the late 80s and early 90s. He He truly was comfortable being numb. in, In the 90s. 
90s when the division bell came out, I uh, I spoke to Waters about it, and he said that the rumor going around the Pink Floyd camp was that Gilmore was walking around asking people, got any concepts? <laughs> 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 yeah. Lyric writing is not one of his strengths. And the other thing is here, 20-year gap between studio albums by a major rock band, Jim. I can't think of a longer gap anywhere in the history of rock. Maybe there is one out there. But I want to pose it to our listeners. I want to ask them if they're excited about new Pink Floyd music after 20 years. Give us a call at is a little bit of the Frozen soundtrack as it was released in Japan, the Japanese version, Greg. You know, there's that Spinal Tap-like joke that bands that no longer matter anywhere else in the world are still big in Japan. This the same apparently is true for audio formats. Japan is still crazy about compact discs. You know, we took a world tour to Japan back in episode 388, and our guests mentioned this fact, but the New York Times just did an interesting article about it. While physical product sales are decreasing everywhere in the world, including Japan, they still account the sale of CDs for an incredible 85% of the music sold in Japan, uh, compared to some countries like Sweden, where they're as low now as 20%. There are two particular reasons for this. Number one, Japan's made it very difficult for streaming music services like Spotify or RDO to get a foothold in that country. They're fighting and dragging out negotiations over rights agreements. Number two, there's a sociological phenomenon. The Japanese consumer loves tangible, physical consumer goods. They like to collect stuff, despite the fact that the Japanese live in much smaller spaces than many people, and CDs are going to clutter those spaces up, and the island has no real physical resources. Nevertheless, people love those shiny discs. And music sales in general have been pretty robust. There have been two million selling hits this year, Frozen and that girl group AKB48, whereas in 2013 uh, there were none. So uh, in the end, music sales and CD sales especially big in Japan. Now remember that near Eurovision winner from back in April. That is Maria Yaromchuk of the Ukraine, who came in sixth place in the Eurovision contest. One of the biggest song contests in the world, certainly the biggest in Europe. Precedes American Idol and The Voice and all those, any contest you could name in the United States for longevity and uh, just reputation. 
So big news related to Eurovision. Uh, the Ukraine has announced it will not take part in next year's Eurovision Song Contest due to limited finances. They've got a few problems in that country, as you probably know, the civil unrest in East Ukraine. The uh, national television company of Ukraine, which normally finances the participation of Ukraine in Eurovision, says it just doesn't have the funds to do anything very good, being very upfront about the fact that uh, they can't put any time and resources into developing an act sufficiently representative of the country for this big contest. And as we found in talking with uh, John Kennedy O'Connor, Eurovision pundit earlier this year, you know, there's a lot of national pride tied up in whoever the contestant is from a particular country. So you can see why they'd want to pull out. It is a sad note for Ukraine. So we went back to O'Connor to get his take on it. He said that he thinks this is a pretty honest report from the uh, Ukrainian national broadcaster and noted that a few other countries, uh, Bosnia, Serbia, Bulgaria, Cyprus, they've also taken a Eurovision break in recent years for cost reasons. But uh, he said, I'll bet those nations also made the decision partly because of poor results. That is not the case with the Ukraine. He also notes that the television company in Ukraine has been offered financial support from their music industry to bankroll an entry next year. So perhaps there's a little more to it than we've been led to believe. We can only speculate. And uh, John adds, which is fun in itself. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is a song called Every Breaking Wave by U2. We are diving into a bevy of important record releases, Greg, that are upon us in the fall season here. we got to deal with U2. We talked about the news aspect of the release of them out there advertising for Apple as Apple released a bunch of new products, and it's new album, it's 13th, being crammed into uh, everybody's iPhone. We threw that question, how did you feel about this free quote-unquote gift from U2, out to our listeners, and we got a lot of fun responses. We're going to hear those later at the end of the show. But now we're going to deal with the artistry here. Who is U2? Who doesn't know, right? They're the biggest band in the world. They keep telling us that. They also want to be one of the most artistically challenging, and they want to be the most important and in inspiring. What do I mean by that? You know the joke, right? Guy dies, goes to heaven, sees St. Peter at the pearly gates. Behind him is standing Bono. Says, hey man, you know, Bono's still alive and kicking. What's going on? And St. Peter says, that's not Bono, that's God. He just likes to pretend he's Bono. Okay, U2 comes with a lot of baggage. It's been around a long time since forming in Dublin in 1976, and now comes album number 13 with an interesting person kind of spearheading the production. There was several producers working on it, but Danger Mouse, Brian Burton, was a key name here, taking the role that's been held in the past by people like Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno to push U2 in new sonic directions. What are they giving us? Have you not downloaded it from the iCloud? It's on your iTunes. Let's play a song. We'll come back and we'll give our opinion. This is a song called This Is Where You Can Reach Me Now by U2 from Songs of Innocence. Songs of Innocence. 
that is this is where you can reach me now from U2, the new album, Songs of Innocence. Jim, uh, some of that snark is certainly justified, I think. Although, I should note that you and I were both uh, relatively pleased with some of the music on their previous studio album, No Line on the Horizon. Some of that experimental flair was there. Yes, it was a commercial dud, not well received by the fans, but I think there was four or five songs on that record that indicated that U2 was still willing to experiment. Not so on Songs of Innocence. This is what a dinosaur does in its last (laughs) days. It returns again and again to what used to work and hope that it somehow can reignite its life and uh, it's just not working. Reignite its life and its fans' interest in the band. What's fascinating here is, uh, as you pointed out, these new production team they've brought in. They used to work with Eno and Lenoir and Mm -hmm. Steve Lillywhite. These were their go-to guys for years and years. Now they've completely broken up the band, at least from a production standpoint. Uh, They brought in Brian Dangermouse Burton, Paul Epworth, who's worked with Adele, Ryan Tedder, who's in One Republic and worked on numerous pop hits. They've tried to create this more commercialized sound. So when they invoke bands like the Ramones in The Miracle of Joey Ramone or The Clash in that song which we just played, which was dedicated to Joe Strummer, This Is Where You Can Reach Me, they sound like poor imitations of those bands. In fact, none of the spirit of those bands that they are invoking is in those songs. This is where you can reach me now is exactly the kind of soft rock blandness that the Clash would have detested (laughs) in their day. You know, why put this on the record as a representation of your love of the Clash? It's exactly opposite what Joe Strummer and the Clash stood for. The other thing that uh, the U2 keeps trumpeting here is the more autobiographical tone of the lyrics. And yes, Bono is addressing his boyhood home in Cedarwood Road, his wife Allie in Song for Someone, his late mother in Iris Hold Me Close. But it's very superficial autobiography. I'm not getting a sense of any real investment, real personal investment in these songs. In fact, this is some of the most impersonal music that U2 has made because they sound more like their imitators. I mean, bands like Imagine Dragons, Airborne Toxic Event, Angels and Airwaves turn on a so-called modern rock station, and you are hearing what U2 is trying to do on this record. Imagine how low they have come (laughs) to imitate what is on modern rock radio. U2 imitators being imitated by U2. That is essentially what this album is. It is a trash it record. You really have some unforgettable fire (laughs) about your your disdain for U2, which I will absolutely second. You know, you call it superficial autobiography, but let us not short the pretension here. It is named Songs of Innocence after the great William Blake. Songs of Innocence, uh, you know, his coming-of-age poems. And I think we don't give enough poetry here on Sound Opinions. This is a line from Blake. Now, like a mighty wind, they raise to heaven the voice of song, Blake wrote. Cherish pity, lest you drive an angel from your door. 
I will tell you, there is a lot of mighty wind on this U2 album, <laughs> but there ain't no angels knocking on the door. There's just uh, some bloated, tired, old, multi-millionaire corporate rock stars who don't have, in my opinion, any right to invoke the name Joey Ramone, much less title a song after him or even say they are part of the same lineage. You are absolutely right. This is as bad as a record gets. It's a trash it. So that is an emphatic double trash it for Songs of Innocence, but it has the virtue of being free. (laughs) (laughs) But you also can't get it out of your iTunes. That's right. All right, coming up, we've got more reviews of Big Fall Records by Interpol, Lucinda Williams, Karen O, and Leonard Cohen. Then it's Jim's turn to talk about a song he cannot live without. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. is supported by Beats Music, a new music service offering curated playlists, personalized music recommendations, and access to over 20 million songs. Learn more about a 14-day trial of Beats at the App Store or at beatsmusic.com. Beats Music, the right music for right now. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and uh, we're running down some of the big fall album releases, including this one from Interpol. The new record is called El Pintor, and the song is called All the Rage Back Home. Interpol formed in the late 90s at New York University in Greenwich Village. Around the turn of the century, they're part of that wave of New York City garage bands, Strokes, Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, TV on the radio, that were making some waves. Their debut album came out in 2002, Turn On The Bright Lights, and Pitchfork named it the year's number one album. Four albums total over the decade. Then they essentially broke up after the self-titled album in 2010, only to reunite a few months ago without bassist Carlos Dengler, who left the band soon after recording that fourth and final album. A key member of the band, but they're now down to a trio with guitarist Daniel Kessler, 
vocalist and bassist and guitarist Paul Banks and drummer Sam Fogarino. Self-produced record, let's take a listen to what they've done. The song is called My Blue Supreme from Interpol, the new record El Pintor on Sound Opinions. That is My Blue Supreme by Interpol from album number five, El Pintor, which of course means the painter in Spanish, Greg, as well as being an anagram for Interpol. And that's symbolic, I think, because all they're doing is shuffling up the ingredients in their formula the same way they shuffled up the letters to form the album title. Nothing new here, no ideas, no new ground being broken. I don't think we need a fifth album from Interpol. I didn't really think we needed a second album from Interpol because, you know, this notion of just updating with an American accent the Joy Division sound with a little bit of that cult band, the Chameleons, thrown in. You know, lots of reverb to guitar and atmosphere and and moaning and droning. This band, I don't think, has ever been very inspiring or original or memorable. I can't remember having listened to them and reviewed them anything from those first four albums. And I can't remember this one, although I listened to it a dozen times. Yet they're stadium-worthy. You know, this is sort of like the hipster drone version of Kings of Leon, which is not a good thing in any way, shape, or form. It's a trash-it record as far as I'm concerned. Well, Jim, you are so wrong. Where do I begin to count the ways that you are wrong? First of all, I know that you hate Interpol because you hate Joy Division, so therefore it no, makes I, a lot of sense. I, I, I am not a Joy Division fan, but I respect Joy Division. I don't respect <laughs> Interpol at all. Well, let me just say this about the Joy Division comparisons. Yes, I noted them. I'm a huge Joy Division fan. I was skeptical about Interpol because clearly they had drank from the same well as I have over the decades, being inspired by that band. But I think they did something fresh with it, particularly in the songwriting department. I think Daniel Kessler is a really innovative guitarist. That icy sound that he has is extremely distinctive. I would say he's been one of the most distinctive guitarists of the last 10, 15 years because of that tone. The other thing, I love the immaculate way those records sound. There's brooding 
a sense of tension, an atmosphere that they distill in their music, but they sound terrific. Those records sound fantastic on headphones. They sound terrific booming out of a car stereo. But also the fact that you're saying that they're not innovating. I agree that there were diminishing returns on albums two, three, and four. There's a reason they went away after that last record in 2010, but they sound rejuvenated on this album, which is a strange thing to say about a band that sort of dwells in the darkness <laughs> a lot. But well, they, what's new? What's but, new? But they do sound triumphant. Well, that song we just played, My Blue Supreme, is a brilliant song. And if you had just put it on without any sort of a background as to who it was, I would not have guessed Interpol certainly right away. That, to me, is an indication that they are trying some new things and there are some fresh sounds on this record. As a trio, I think they had to reinvent themselves a little bit without Carlos Dengler in the band. He was a key part of that sound on the first four records. As a trio making this record, I think they were able to find some new avenues that they had not previously explored, and I think it's the one essential Interpol record since the debut. I'm going to give it a buy it. A lot of people are going to recognize that voice instantly, Greg. That is Lucinda Williams with a song called Something Wicked This Way Comes from her new double album, Down Where the Spirit Meets the Bone. Some folks may remember that tune. Lucinda debuted it here on Sound Opinions when she was on in the spring of last year. Lucinda Williams is a musical treasure at this point. Born in Lake Charles, Louisiana in 1953, raised by a father, Miller Williams, who was a famous poet and literature professor, began playing in New Orleans at a very young age in the early 70s. 1974, relocates to Austin, Texas, and really is part of a resurgence of what will become alternative country in that city. People who are living outside the rules of country music as it's played in Nashville, who don't necessarily play nice with others unless they're as, as eccentric and uh, willfully rebellious as themselves. That certainly, I think, sums up Lucinda Williams, a cult heroine for decades now, has flirted with mainstream success, often when other artists have covered her work, most notably Mary Chapin Carpenter scoring a big hit with Passionate Kisses. She is not incredibly prolific. It has been a long time since her last album, 2011, with Blessed. Now she's 61 years old, taking her time, and is giving us this flood of new material, unusual for an artist who's known for taking so much time between records and being such a perfectionist. Now we have a lot of new music all at once. Let's play another song, Something Wicked This Way Comes, leads off disc two. We're going to play a song from disc one. This is called West Memphis by Lucinda Williams, Down Where the Spirit Meets the Bone on Sound Opinions. Somebody got in the way with murder and a horrible offense. 
music I listened to They didn't like the way I dressed They set me up with a false confession I never had a chance They threw the book at me at my experience They got no common sense But that's the way they do things in West Memphis That's the way we do things in West Memphis That's the way we do things in West Memphis It's never been any different So don't come around here and try to mess with us Cause that's the way we do things in West Memphis That is West Memphis from Lucinda Williams. The new album is called Down Where the Spirit Meets the Bone. As Jim said, a prolific outpouring from an artist not noted for being so prolific. She does take her time between records. We now get 110 minutes of music at once (laughs) from Lucinda Williams. 20 songs! And the vibe of this record is one of the loosest in her history. That mix of country, blues, rock, and folk, she's always been uh, a tweener, you know? Always worked in the margins of these various genres, not one or the other, but touching on all of them. And the loose vibe uh, that prevails in the studio, a lot of guest musicians as well as her touring band. It's not too studied. It's kind of loose, a little bit shaggy. She likes it that way. Same thing with Lucinda's vocal delivery. It's not for everybody. You know, there's a heavy drawl. Some of the words are kind of slurred. But one thing about Lucinda Williams, when she feels a song, you're going to get it from the heart and from the gut. She really makes you believe that she believes. The sincerity is there. And I think this is one of her most desperately passionate records in a lot of ways. When you hear the desperation in a song like Compassion and almost the shell-shocked tone of beauty and wonder in When I Look at the World. These are almost respites from what the rest of the record is about. She is seething on songs like East Side of Town and West Memphis and Foolishness. You know, the song we just played, West Memphis, it's loosely based on that West Memphis 3 trial down there. And it tells the story of a man wrongly convicted of murder, in part because, quote, they didn't like the music I listened to, they didn't like the way I dressed. And she's basically saying, you know, our criminal justice system, our society is broken because of the way we look at the world. You get the sense from Lucinda on this record that she's tired of being jerked around as a woman Mm -hmm. in these relationships, but she's also tired of being told that things are being done this way because, well, we've just always done them that way. You know, and she's asking why. (laughs) This record is a big why in the face of all of that. Now, I'll be the first to say that two discs of Lucinda, 20 songs, I could have pruned that down to a 10-song masterpiece. But even so, I'm going to recommend that you buy this record because the great songs on this record are, are definitely worth your attention. Well, I will second your buy it, Greg, and your enthusiasm for Lucinda is justified and almost as effusive as your hatred for you too was. <laughs> I'll confess, I used this line about Interpol. Uh, Lucinda was long an artist that I respected more than I loved to listen to. The voice was a little, you know, car wheels on a gravel road. It was a little hard to take, okay? And this is not a cheerful album. This is a pretty heavy, depressing album, and you're, you're kind of going to get lost in 110 minutes and 20 songs, but it is worth it to persevere because there are treasures here. You know, I don't think it could have been cut down. I think this mm. is really her opening her suitcase in a way she's always been reluctant to do, and letting us just rifle through it. It's an extraordinary record, hence an enthusiastic double buy it. Bright as a star, be the light on this kind of snow. 
single from Karen O's first solo album, Crush Songs. Karen O, of course, is best known as the front woman for the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, one of those bands you mentioned earlier that burst out of New York early in the new millennium. Really an exciting time in New York City for rock and roll. But she's also done a lot lately on her own. She did a tune for a Nike shoe commercial with director Spike Jones. She did soundtrack work for the film adaptation of Where the Wild Things Are. And she was nominated for an Academy Award for a tune from the soundtrack of her. Now comes her first solo album released on Julian Casablancas of The Strokes, cult records label. The songs aren't new. They date from when she was 27. As she said, at that period, I crushed a lot. The album's called Crush. I wasn't sure I'd ever fall in love again. These songs were written and recorded in private around this time. Let's hear a tune from the album called King, and then we'll give our reviews. It's Karen O from Crush Songs on Sound Opinions. King by Karen O. The new album is called Crush Songs, her solo debut. You know, yeah, yeah, yes, her former band. It doesn't appear like they're going to be doing anything again together soon. She defined that band in so many ways and, frankly, was one of the great front woman singers, stage presences that you could possibly ask, really a defining presence in rock uh, the last decade. Galvanizing. And and capable of writing some really cool introspective things. You know, people think about her tossing beer at them in those shows. She was really feisty, but there was also these beautiful, quieter, more introspective moments like Maps on Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's records that indicated that Karen O could go to that place very well. 
also. But here we have a record that is not even of cell phone recording quality. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like, what, what's, what's defective about the radio boys? Can you get the fidelity a little higher? Well, no, that's what this record actually sounds like. The rudimentary acoustic guitar, background noise. I guess she's trying to create the sense of, well, this is how this stuff was recorded. There is a sense of intimacy on this record, but that's about all I'll give it. I think the virtues of this record are that most of the songs are very short, so you don't have to listen to them that long. <laughs> I mean... It's, it's going to be torturous, but it'll be over quickly. Oh, my goodness. You know, Jim, demos. I mean, here are demos. Here are songs that maybe had a kernel of potential that she should have gone back to and, and worked and refined, and maybe we could have had something there. The song that we played off at the top, Wrapped, I think had a lot of potential. I could have heard that as a yeah, yeah, yeah song, but it's not here right now. I'm really surprised that an artist of her quality released a record this poor. It's a trash it record. Wrapped could have been something you said, Greg. I don't think the song we played, King, could have ever been anything. You know, she's, she's talking about Michael Jackson. The king of pop is dead and gone away. No one will ever take his place. He's in his castle in the sky watching over you and I. There was a childlike naivete to the music she did for Where the Wild Things Are, very appropriate. And there was a vulnerable kind of nakedness to Moonsong, that Academy Award-nominated track from her. Here, there's nothing, none of those charms. I think she's trying to be Kim Yacht Dawson. Remember, the moldy peaches were part of that New York scene, along with the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and the Strokes. And then Kim Yacht Dawson went on to do the soundtrack for Juno. She's trying for that... I am a seven- or eight-year-old girl playing with a recorder in my bedroom. I'm counting in songs. I'm blowing notes. I'm, I'm screwing up the lyrics. You know, it's recorded badly. The songs are bad. They're sung badly. There's nothing to recommend this record. So, yeah, I'll give it a trash it as well. So those are two double trash hits for the new record by U2 and Karen O. A buy it from Greg and a trash it for me for Interpol and two enthusiastic buy it's at least for Lucinda Williams. But enough about what we think. We want to know what you think of these albums and fall releases in general that have got you excited. Call 888-859-1800. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook or Twitter. We'll be back with our final review of the week, the latest from veteran songwriter and poet Leonard Cohen.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. This is our final big fall album release of this show. It's Leonard Cohen with a song called Slow from his 13th studio album. It's called Popular Problems. Leonard Cohen just turned 80 years old. He was born in 1934 in Montreal, and here we're still talking about him. What a career this man has had. An acclaimed poet and novelist in the 60s began his recording career relatively late. He was already in his 30s when he went to New York and started pursuing dreams of becoming a folk singer. His song, Suzanne, put him on the map. It was covered by Judy Collins. It was a hit for her. He was signed by John Hammond to Columbia Records. I mean, this guy was looked upon as a masterful songwriter. And his first three albums justified that acclaim. Songs of Leonard Cohen in 1967, followed by Songs from a Room in 1969, and Songs of Love and Hate in 1971. Robert Altman, the great director, featured Cohen's songs in his classic film McCabe and Mrs. Miller in 1971. Phil Spector wanted to produce this guy. He worked with him in 1977 on a record called Death of a Ladies' Man. It needs to be noted that Leonard Cohen was the guy who wrote Hallelujah, a song you have heard everywhere. It's in dentist offices. It's in elevators. It's on every song contest you could name. It is in the soundtrack to Shrek. It has been covered by Jeff Buckley and John Cale and Katie Lang. It is one of the great songs of the last 30 years. Leonard Cohen wrote it. Hallelujah. 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 What an interesting life as well. He went on a nearly decade-long hiatus in California in the 90s in which he was ordained a Zen Buddhist monk then returned to music making in 2001 and has been back ever since acclaimed tours, new albums as I said, 13th studio album now with popular problems here's a track from it, it's called Almost Like the Blues from Leonard Cohen on Sound Opinions I saw some people starving there was murder there was rape their villages were burning They were trying to escape I couldn't meet their glances I was staring at my shoes It was acid, it was tragic It was almost like the blues It was almost like the blues I have to die a little And there's killing And there's all my bad reviews The war, the children missing, Lord It's almost like the blues It's almost like the blues So I let my heart get frozen To keep away the rot My father says I'm chosen My mother says I'm not I listen to their story 
of the gypsies and the Jews. It was good. It wasn't boring. It was almost like the blues. It was almost like the blues. That was almost like the blues by Leonard Cohen from the 13th studio album of his career, Popular problems. Greg, in some ways, having written a masterpiece like Alleluia, which would be on my top list of five songs, like, of all time, okay? You know, how do you escape that millstone? All right, so there's nothing as good as Alleluia on this album. On the other hand, there are nine songs that are better than anything I think Cohen has given us since he's reactivated his career in the last decade. You know, 2011, the album Old Ideas, eh, that was an apt title, okay? Although it was produced by Ed Sanders of the Fugs, who goes way back to the 60s with Cohen. It was just kind of mediocre and sort of overly polished, as some of his tours have been, a little prissy. There's a rawness here, I think you heard it in Almost Like the Blues, that really suits Cohen. He's also got the wicked sense of humor. You know, that song, uh, Slow, that opens the album, Let Me Catch My Breath, I Thought We Had All Night. He doesn't move quickly, not in terms of songwriting. It took him five years to write Alleluia, apparently, and he doesn't sing quickly or move quickly through his music, but he cherishes every word, and there's a dark sense of humor among all of the gloom and doom. You know, you would never call any of his songs cheerful by any means. It's just a, a pure delight. I think this is one of his strongest albums in the, in the top third of all of his output of those 13 records, so it's a buy it for me. Yeah, Leonard Cohen, the sense of humor, in almost like the blues, I love that line, there's torture and there's killing and there's all my bad reviews. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> I mean, even as a young guy, when he was starting to make records in, in the 60s, he sounded like a much older man. You know, he never sounded like a kid. Yeah, has there uh, ever been a time when he wasn't 80 years old? He always felt like this guy had been around the block just one more, at least one more time than you had, and he had things to tell you that you did not know about the world, young man. It was wise, but it was never condescending, and I think the key to that has always been that humor. You start to see life is this sort of unwinnable race. Leonard Cohen has been writing songs like that from the start. They're all over this record. An unwinnable race, sure, but also dark comedy. You know, it's mm-hmm. important to enjoy it for its absurdity, and you, and you hear it in this record. The occasional moments of love and inspiration, truth and beauty, and you know, all the things that art is supposed to be about. You know, yeah, he gets that part of it, but it's not, life isn't like that all the time. It can't be. This is a political record. You know, we mentioned that Lucinda Williams is addressing some things in a, in a broader view, and, and Leonard Cohen is occasionally touched on politics in his music, and he's back to that frame of mind here. A song like Nevermind, you know, about war and its aftermath, talking about this outsider, this person who will never fit in, you know, a lifelong refugee because of conflict and the somewhat mysterious role that he played in these conflicts. It's it's all very well done. Nobody writes songs quite like Cohen in terms of getting inside the mind of these people who are consistently on the margins. You know, you mentioned the production. There's a cheese ball factor that Leonard has played around with on his records over the decades. There's a hint of it here. Patrick Leonard, of all people, produced the record. He's worked with Madonna in the past. But Cohen's voice is just this voice of authority and, as I said, humor, and it can't be denied. It's a buy-it record from Leonard Cohen at age 80. Buy this record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Oh, 
You remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible on this show, we like to take a trip to the Desert Island. Jim, it is your turn to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox and play a song you can't live without. What are you going to give us? Greg, I'm going to go back to a band that was really important in the whole Chicago area all through the 90s, the Blue Meanies. They uh, are long since broken up, but they reunited recently to uh, reappear at Riot Fest. They formed originally at Southern Illinois University in 1989, and I think they were wrongly written off through their most productive period of the mid-'90s as third-wave ska, like the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones or No Doubt before Gwen Stefani was a big superstar. I don't think that was ever right. I mean, there were so many elements in their sound. Yeah, there was ska, and they had a horn section, but there was also klezmer and punk rock and jazz and two dozen other things. To me, the rightful comparisons are to bands like System of a Down, that no genre, that was just all over the map, or, you know, Frank Zappa at his best. Led by a vocalist, Billy Spunky, who really couldn't sing, but sure was a great stage presence, they, they had their shot late, just as the alternative era was waning, leaving the indie labels where they'd been their whole career for MCA Records, getting their big major label debut with a record called The Post Wave, which you and I both liked a lot when it came out in 2000. We thought it was wonderful, really good songwriting. It was neat to have them record with that kind of production for once, and then they broke up. I'm going to play a song from that record, from The Post Wave in 2000, called Mama's Getting High on Chardonnay. It's like two minutes and 17 seconds long. It's got these great horns, and it's their modern twist on Mother's Little Helper by the Rolling Stones, a classic. It's the Blue Meanies on Sound Opinions.
That's my Desert Island jukebox pick for the week, the Blue Meanies with Mama getting high on Chardonnay. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we're going to get high on guitar riffs. We are going to highlight the greatest guitar riffs of all time. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Anthony Martinez. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get back to you. Hey, how are you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name uh, and your number, and I'll get back to you. New messages. Hi, my name is Betsy. I am calling from Skokie, Illinois. I'm 51 years old. I'm calling about the U2 free gift from Apple and iTunes. And um, I'm not sure it's a generational issue. Like I said, I'm not a 20-something by a long shot, and I don't like the idea. I am an iTunes customer, and I just don't want anybody else putting stuff in in my inbox, so to speak. I consider it spam. So um, if they want to give me a credit for a free download for any song I choose, then that's great. But, you know, I don't have any problem with you, too, but um, who's it going to be next week, you know? So, anyway, bad idea, if you ask me. Thanks. Bye. Every breaking wave on the shore Till the next one, there'll be one more And every gambler knows that to lose Is what you're really there for Hi, love your show. My name is Judy from Evergreen Park, Illinois. I have maybe a uh, interesting perspective in that I had never heard a U2 song until it was invaded into my phone. I didn't like the idea of the invasion. I didn't download it from the cloud right away, thinking there might be some sort of bug with it. But since downloading a few songs, there's one I really love about the ocean waves, and I think the poetry and the lyrics are beautiful. Hi, my name is Tony LeClaire comment is about you two inserting themselves on everyone's eye devices. But it was absolutely genius, and I think complainers want to complain. There's nothing wrong with it. They've always been able to reach out and touch your, your tunes on your eye list. When you order a song, it gets placed there. Every time you get an update, it alters it. So it's always happened. So people complaining that Big Brother can just reach out into my playlist, they've always been able to do that. So the minute you bought one of those things, you were buying into a Big Brother being able to touch you in some way. So, yeah, that's my opinion. Thank you. Face down on a broken street, there's a man in the corner in a pool of misery. I'm in a white van as a red sea covers the ground. 
Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Dave Emery, and I'm calling in response to your uh, your request for people to talk about the U2 incident where uh, their music was given away as a delightful free gift for owners of the uh, Apple products like the iPhone. And I thought I would call in and give my own uh, personal experience with this, which uh, was very special. Uh, I was actually sitting with some friends uh, on, the, on the beach in a beautiful remote area of California, and I went to... Uh, play them something that I had done on uh, my own music uh, on the on my uh, iPad. The only thing on my iPad is the music from our group, which I use in performance, and I wanted to demo something for them. And I looked down and I realized that there's another album on there, which is this U2 album that I did not order. This is a particular uh, sort of grotesque irony for me, because I happen to be in a group that's called Negative Land, which was sued by U2 in 1992. So it, it, it was quite something to look down and see our work and U2, and that's all I had on my device. Big Bono is watching you. That's my thoughts on the matter. Bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.